Okay, today begins our series on David. It's called Up Close and Personal. And I don't know how familiar you are with David in the Bible. Some of you may be saying, this is going to be a first for me. I really don't know much about David. Others of you may have studied a lot about David and understand so much from his life. I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of wade into the shallow end of the pool today with an introduction. I don't know, maybe it was the fact that he was the youngest. He was totally overlooked by his family as a candidate for king. Maybe for some it's, it's because he was a musician. If you go to the book of Psalms, which is like the hymnal of the Bible, many of them were written by David. And some people say, man, that, that's what connects me with David. Maybe it's he was a long shot with a slingshot. You know, maybe that is what connects with you. Maybe it's the fact that he refused to kill this insane king of Saul, even though Saul was hunting him down because David feared God. Maybe it's his authenticity and humanity when he danced before the ark of the Lord and didn't care what anyone thought about him. And I'm not sure what it is for you, but somehow, some way, we connect with this man. He's one of the most loved men in the entire Bible. He was emotional. He was musical. He was poetic. He was hunted. He was applauded. He was extremely human. And he was forgiven. I think we all can relate with David. And so many things await us over the next few months as we work through this character of Scripture. I just can't wait to get into it, so let's just do it. Grab your copy of the Scriptures, whether it's in a paper cover or whether it is through digital, online, or your, your phone or your tablet or whatever it is. But let's work through this 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. When we start and we see first truths about someone, they're always significant and, and the Bible wants us to take note of them. So here we are. We're going to start at the Bible's beginning account of David. And with firsts being important, they reveal a lot about the situation. So as you're on your way to chapter 15, and then we're going to put the car in park in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, I want to tell you a couple things. So here's where we come on the scene. Saul is the current king of Israel in chapter 15. David is an unknown. People have no idea who this kid is at this point in the game. Saul's the king. Saul was beast. He was 30 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned for 42 years. This guy was a focal point. The scriptures tell us he was handsome. He was tall. He was a warrior. And so when people looked at Saul, he was what they would say, this guy is king material. And as for kings, he had all the bells and whistles. He gave the persona to Israel. He was the man. And here's something else. He had a downfall, though, and it's chronicled throughout chapter 15. 
His downfall was when he feared people more than God. He disobeyed God. God had specific commands for him. When they took over the Amalekites, God said, I want you to destroy all the Amalekites. Don't leave anyone. And I want all their possessions, I want them destroyed. Don't keep any of them. Well, Saul listened to his men, and he did something different. Look at this verse. Saul's own admission to Samuel the prophet. He says, you know, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave into, into them. Popularity over principle. Folks, let's talk about today. Popularity over principle. Fear causes leadership paralysis. And the one who makes you afraid is the one who rules you. The one who leads you. And we tend to compromise our decisions. And so Saul felt he could appease God at this point. He's saying, you know what? Okay, I did blow it. I did keep some of the Amalekites alive, and I did also keep many of their possessions. <clears throat> and so here's what he decided to do. You know, I think I can appease God. I'm going to make some sacrifices to God from the sheep that I kept and say, there you go, God, we worshiped you. And here is, I'm telling you, the mic drop of God in this whole situation because the, the prophet says from the Lord this verse in 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. Look at it on your screen. It says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Like, I know you got sacrifices for me, but you disobeyed. God says, here's what I want. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed or to do is better than the fat of rams. And then he gives this tremendous statement. He says, because rebellion, doing your own thing, is like the sin of witchcraft, like divination, and arrogance is like idolatry. Because you know, when we say, hey, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to do it this way. I know God said this. I'm doing this. God just comes out and says, you know what? That's idolatry. And guess who the idol is? It's us. God, it's me over you. It's my thoughts over yours. It's my way over yours. It's my preferences over what you've instructed. And ultimately, God says, let's just, let's just not sugarcoat it. That's idolatry. You're God. You make the call. And he just said it right to Saul. He says, yo, this is what I want. I want obedience. I don't want sheep. I want you. I don't want your outward display of religion. I want your heart. I want your loyalty. I want your affection. And then God just said, you know, okay, I've rejected you. Saul, I've rejected you. And God did that. He was about to anoint a new king over Israel. And all of Saul's attempts to turn around at this point, God voiced his displeasure. And he says, Saul, I'm just going to have to replace you. And he said it through Samuel. It was hard for Samuel to tell him that, but he did. God was going to let Saul go, and it caused intense grief and sorrow. So here's the big question. Who is God going to choose over Saul? The tall, handsome warrior of Saul. Who would God choose? Would it be someone more handsome? Bigger? Stronger? Maybe with more military experience? 
Who would this end up being? Well, God takes Samuel on a little journey. This prophet, he takes him to see whom God has chosen. So if you're there now in 1 Samuel 16, here's where we're looking. Verses 1 to 3. Follow along. This is fantastic. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, just fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel said, how, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I will indicate. So here we're going to find out a little bit about this journey of Samuel and the selection of ultimately of David and all of this. So first I want, I want to show you, he says, I want you to go to Jesse of Bethlehem. Jesse of Bethlehem. So let's just talk about the place because this is just not what people would think. The place, Bethlehem, was small. Now, we've got this notion. I, I'm not sure what your notion is, but I think if you're like me, we have this notion that Bethlehem was a big deal. You know, we sing the Christmas songs about Bethlehem. Some of you have already started Christmas music. I'm here to tell you, stop that. <laughs> you're going to ruin our good weather, okay? Stop it. But we hear about Bethlehem, we think, wow, this is so popular. Let me just tell you, Jesus put Bethlehem on the map. It was a nothing. It was tiny. You know, where it was happening was Jerusalem. Jerusalem had the entertainment. They had the markets. They had all the consumerism. Jerusalem was the place to be. Bethlehem, you know what they had? They had barley fields. In fact, Bethlehem means house of bread. It was their little grocery store down there. Let's get some grain and bring it up here. That way we can be taken care of. That was the idea. It was agricultural. Now, I know, I know, and I feel a little bit bad. I've picked on Buckley. I've picked on Kingsley. And they, you know, they're easy to pick on. They may actually be pretty good compared to the climate of Bethlehem back in this day. We think of them as way out there, disconnected. You know, we love you, Buckley and Kingsley people. We really do. We think, wow, you know, they're not the city. They're not necessarily where it all has. They don't have the big stores. That's Bethlehem. That's, that's where God went. I think that's one reason why we connect with him. Why we connect with David. Small town guy. Not a big city guy. I grew up in a little town called Savannah, New York. Town of 500. And I look at this guy and think, that's cool. God went to a little place called Bethlehem. Here's the second thing. Notice his family. I know we think Jesse. Because he says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, Jesse is known because of who came before him and who came after him. But not because of him. So I'm sending you to Jesse, 
So when God told Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's place in Bethlehem, there isn't any notion of popularity. There isn't any recognition in that command. Jesse was not necessarily a popular individual. Jesse had no name for himself at this point. The only reason why we know about this guy is because some of the folks before us, let me just share with you who all this is. Jesse's Grandma, look at, look at, this is the lineology of, of Jesus in Matthew 1, 5 to 6, and he tells us who Jesse is. So it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, let's just make sure we're all in the same room here on this. Rahab was what before God found her? Rahab was a? She was a prostitute. So Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. I'm not sure if you're connected on who Ruth was. Maybe this is new to some of you. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabitess. And so in this day, it all was about your lineage. You know, what line are you in in Israel? Oh, I'm in the line of Levi. You know, I'm in the line of Aaron. I'm, you know, all these different lines. Well, Jesse's background, his mom was a Moabitess, former pagan worshiping foreigner. And his, I'm sorry, his grandma was that. His great grandma was a prostitute. Like this is not necessarily the lineage. When, when someone says, Samuel, go to Jesse's house. Like What? In a day where moral roots were significant, don't think for a moment that Jesse would have brought excitement to anyone because of his lineage. Like, Jesse? Really? And then here's the last thing I want to mention. Then there's David. Now, the boy David was the lowest on the totem pole because after they go through all of the discussion, they go through all of the seven sons, and they're like isn't there anyone else and they're like oh yeah um he is tending the sheep they're still the youngest but he's out there let's just begin to fill in the last of the blanks here about this no name town from questionable background and now he's the baby can we just hear it for the babies in the family this morning how many are babies oh god bless you I am too. Babies are the best. Amen? Amen. Okay. At least my mother hopefully said that if she's watching online. Babies are the best. But here's the youngest. I know we say that today, babies are the best. Let me just tell you, back then, babies were not the best. Babies were the lowest. The best was the firstborn. That's where most of the inheritance went. That's where most of the esteem went. That's where most of the transaction went. And then if you've got seven brothers, you know, here you are on the very end of the line the baby who who would consider the baby and obviously they didn't because when all the rest of the brothers are being lined up for king me david isn't even in the room he's out tending the sheep he was doing the most menial thing that servants do in fact just you know imagine this 
Imagine your sibling is being interviewed for the CEO of Apple and you're asked to stay home and, and babysit the cats. That's what's going on. He wasn't considered in the least for this position. And that was by the people closest to him. And so for whatever things David may have had going for him, the text does say he had good appearance, he was handsome. It mentions he was ruddy, meaning either reddish hair or he was reddened from the strong Middle Eastern sun. He did not have it over his brothers. They were bigger, they were bolder, they were more handsome, they were first in line. And so that's why we're talking about this series up close and personal because friends God personally listen to this God personally knew David up close even though he was overlooked even though he was out in the pasture even though he didn't have all the glitz and glamour and the height and the build God knew him up close and personal and selected him. And in this, we're going to learn some of the biggest lessons because we live in a day of surface. We live in a day of image. We live in a day of appearance. And there's such a deceptive nature to appearance. It's not always as we would think it is. You know, Saul, this whole book is going to deal with our appearances and with the superficial. Saul was handsome. He was tall. He was dark. He was great as a soldier. That's what it all looked like. David's brothers were taller, bolder, trained for the job. These guys were military grade. Here's another one about appearances. Goliath. Goliath was huge. And he had the armor. He looked invincible. That's what the appearance was. He was the one every Israelite, including Saul, the king, cowered under. Here's another appearance that came into this story that we're going to come to play here in a bit. Bathsheba. The surface. The appearance. Everyone gets caught up in the surface. What we can see. We all do. Our whole culture does. But the account of David, God teaches us the greatest lesson that we need to learn and experience. And this is what it is. This is the lesson. God doesn't value the same things that we do. God doesn't value the surface the way we do. God doesn't value the appearance the way that we do. God isn't duped by the outward. He doesn't say things from a surface level and say, wow, that must be how it truly is. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson of David. God isn't enamored with externals. He values your heart. He values what's going on on the inside. In our superficial Culture, it's all about appearance. The things that turn people's heads. So let's just talk about what those are. What are things that turn our head 
in our day, and I'll tell you that they probably weren't a whole lot different than back then, but here's probably one, and we mentioned in our prayer time out before the service at 9.30, I asked, what are things that turn our head? Number one, surface thing, beauty, good looks, how people dress. Those are the things that turn our heads in our day. You know, if someone's good looking and fit and trim and muscles, you know, if they got all that going for them, if they got the outfit and everything going for them, that's what turns our head. I love this one picture meme uh, that's been online. Maybe you've seen it. How telling that is. You, you know, um, appearance, keep that up for a second. Appearance is how we want people to see us. Not necessarily what we are. Can I add another appearance thing on this? Facebook? Instagram? I think we all know the real name of Facebook. It's Fakebook. It's how I want people to see me. Well, look how great I am. Look how great the family is. Look how awesome everything is. We put up an image. We put up a surface. And on the back side of that, what's really going on on the inside? Let me get into a couple other things. Here's some other things that turn our head that we... That we assess people's value based upon. We assess people's value based upon their possessions. Their possessions, like, you know, wow, that's an awesome car. Man, their house is incredible. Look at all the things they have. They've got the iPhone 30. <laughs> and I'm still on the, you know, the flip phone. And, and our value goes up and down based upon those toys. Then there's talent and ability. This is another thing. Wow, they're incredible. Whether by their sports or whether by their singing or whether by their speaking or whether by their leadership as we see it or whether... You know, how they work in their, in their uh, area, their sphere. You know, they can debate. They can play an instrument. They can do all of these things. Their talent and their ability. And we look at the surface and say, they're just awesome. Incredible. Then there's intellect. And education. You know, oh, they're so smart. They know so much. They can reason. They can debate. They can argue. They just seem to know it all. They have all the answers to all the questions. They know all the Bible trivia. And I don't know all that stuff. You know, they have all the training. And we look at that. Then we look at popularity and position. They've got the job title. They're always promoted. They hang with the cool cats. And we look at people today... And these are the things that oftentimes drive our perceptions and they shape what we think about them. They shape how we value them. 
And we, we think that that must be reflective of who they are before God. That must be indicative of how God views them because it's the way that I view them. And this is the thing that Samuel was dealing with when he started the selection for King Me. Because look at that, look at the verses as he's starting to work through this and, and he walks up in Jesse's house and he says, okay, let's figure it out. As he walks in, there's this guy, Eliab. He's the firstborn son. This guy's a tank. Look at verses 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel 16. So when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, you know, all that he saw, this guy's, this guy's big. This guy's handsome. This guy's military grade, and so he saw from his eyes, and he thought this, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. This has got to be the guy. Wow. Slam dunk. Just look at him. This guy's got it all going on. And I'm telling you, verse 7, God just levels the whole thing. Verse 7, look at this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Boom. And then God states this reality that needs to be ours as well. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. God was not enamored with his height. God was not enamored with his prowess with his abilities, with his education, with anything, the, the, the beauty, the handsomeness, none of it. God says, I look right past that. He says, but people look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at, you with me on this? What does the Lord look at? The heart. That's what he looks at. And at first look, Samuel was sold on this guy. He's got to be the one. He's got to have all of it. And in fact, we're going to see in chapter 17, he was in the military. Like he was out there when Goliath was on the field. He's trained. He checks all the boxes. Step aside, Saul. We've got your substitute. It's Eliab. This is him. And that day, my friend, God smashed the superficial standards that people have. And he revealed something special about himself. God doesn't look at what we look at. God's not impressed with what we're impressed with. God doesn't say that's got to be it. They're just phenomenal. God looks past all of that. He's not swayed in any way by it. It's not his standard of evaluation and after all the brothers were looked over, after the whole line went through, Samuel says, wow, I thought I was going to pick someone from your family. Is there anyone left? Well, there's, there's David, you know. He's the baby. He, he's out in the field doing what servants do. He's not even in the top consideration, but in that one moment, when David stepped into the room with all of his brothers and his dad is there too, God said, this is the man. He's the one. 
And I'm sure all the brothers were looking at him like, what? Davy? Really? Doesn't God see what we see in these other guys? The baby? The one we give all the grunt work to? Like, I don't want to do it. Hey, David, you do it. I want to end with a couple things. Thank you for your patience. I got a little excited and went over for the first time since last week. (laughs) But this is so important. We need to take time on it. Because this is the heart of the matter. Since God looks at the heart, that's not an if. Since God looks at the heart, there's a couple things we need to talk about. Here's number one. Since God looks at the heart, what does God see in us? Huh? What's the reality? I know what we want others to see in us, especially when we come into church. How's it going? Great. Everything's great. I'm great. My wife's great. My kids are great. My job's great. Everything. But what does God see in us? Like no pretense, no phony baloney. God's not fooled by how we act or what we say or how we say. You know, we can say stuff. Yes, I'm great. But here's a, here's a great phrase for us to remember. God doesn't read lips. He reads hearts. Doesn't matter what we say. What does God see in us? I'm just, I'm just, here's the first step. If we're gonna have a heart like David, if we're gonna have something that God sees and accepts, here's the first step. Because the Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked. It is. Now, I know we like to think otherwise. No, I'm really good inside. Let me just tell you, I know me. And I can say this reality. The Bible's true when it says our heart is deceitfully wicked. It's not just wicked, but it's so wicked we deceive ourselves into thinking we're actually okay when we're not. And so here's the first thing that God needs to see when he sees your heart. This is the first step. If you don't have this, forget everything else. The first thing God needs to see when he sees your heart is Jesus Christ. Because we all are sinners. All of us at the core are rotten. If we'll be honest. And all of that sin needs to be forgiven. And some people say, how can my sin be forgiven? I know they think if if my good outweighs my bad then I think I'll be okay with God. I'm here to tell you, if you think that's what it is, you are in for a hellish surprise one day. The only way our sin can be forgiven is through one person and through what he did for us, and it's Jesus Christ, 
and he died and was tortured and beaten to bear the punishment that we deserve for our wrong. And if God's going to look at us and accept us in any way, he needs to see that we believe that about Jesus. We believe he died for our sin. That there's no other way to be accepted before God than to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. But Jesus took my hit and served my sentence and bore my punishment for my wrong. I believe it. I embrace it. God, be my forgiver. Be my leader. That needs to be your prayer. That's the first step. It's all about Jesus. Amen? I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus said. And no one comes unto the Father but by me. The first thing God needs to see is Jesus Christ in our life. That we believe he's our forgiver and leader by what he did on the cross. Here's the second question I want to ask. Not only what does he see in us, what do we emphasize the most? Can we just recalibrate everything this morning? Can we be our, our GPS and say recalculating? Because everything that we often view and value are not the things that matter most to God. And so recalculating that, that route isn't going to work anymore. You know, Christianity, when we view the lives of others, we need to recalculate. Because we'll look at other people's lives and we'll say, you know what, they're not doing it the way I do it. You know, Christianity can be all about doing church my way. If you have the right dress, if you have the right hair, the right music, the right methods, the right knowledge, the right philosophy. If you do it my way, then you measure up. If you don't do it my way, well, then you're wrong, and God won't accept you, and neither will I. So what would Christianity and church look like if it genuinely valued and prioritized the first things that God values? Loving God, loving people. People over programs, authenticity over ability, worship over busyness, joy, peace, patience. If we stopped evaluating people on the surface and longed for growing what matters most in the heart. And some of the greatest people I've found in Christianity are not the ones with all the glitz and glamour and flash. It's the ones that genuinely love God with all their heart. And they love people too. So what do we emphasize the most in the lives of others? Here's the second thing. What do we emphasize the most in our lives? Like what do we spend our investment on? Are we more concerned about the surface? How people perceive us? Keeping up with the Joneses or the expectations and standards of others? You know, giving the right answers not the real answers. You know what I'm talking about. What do we reveal about ourselves? You'll have more impact. Listen to this. You'll have more impact on people being real than being perfect. 
The day of faking it so others will think you're great reveals a heart of pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy. And other people may be impressed, but God is not. So would you stand with me? We need to think about the heart. It's a lesson God's been driving for millennia. And the two things we need to think about the heart, number one, is Jesus in your life. Will God see that you truly have given your life to Jesus Christ? That's where it starts. So if you're in this room, And you're saying, man, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus. I don't know if God accepts me. I don't know if I'm forgiven. This is step one right here. I believe Jesus bore my punishment for my sin. God, when you look at me, please don't see me. See Jesus. See Jesus. And that may be your step today. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. I know I'm a sinner. I need his forgiveness. Talk to him about that in a moment. And number two, the second thing, think about a heart word. I'm going to give them to you. Here's some heart words. These are things that God sees. Think about which heart word connects with you and something you need to focus on this week. Here's some heart words. Humility. Mm. Love. Selflessness. Patience. Purity. I love the word in our prayer time this morning. Innocence. Oh my. Encouragement. Gentleness. Others minded. Self-control. Those are heart words. Those are what God looks for. Not the flash. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. And I want you to do some business with God right now, right where you're at, in your heart to believe in Jesus. And think about a heart word that you know may be different on the inside than what you'd like to portray on the out. And say, God, you see it for what it is. Forgive me. And let's work on it this week. Would you pray to God right now in the silence? Go ahead. So, Father, in this moment... We just, we know that we're bare before you, that you see it all. And we don't want to fake it. God, change our hearts. Make it to be like the heart of Jesus. God, strip from us pretense. Help us to recalculate what truly matters most. Because, God, we want you to see us. No matter what others say, we want you to see us right, pure, 
with Jesus in our life changes. Thank you for our time this morning, Lord. May it not just end here. Take it with us. Grow us. Bring it to our remembrance. Change our heart. We pray this together in the name of Jesus. We all said, amen, amen.